This podcast is brought to you in part by Bradley, a full-service law firm representing clients across the country from nine offices, including Jackson, Mississippi. Learn more at bradley.com. Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right On Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. Hosted by Ebony Lumumba and brought to you by the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Chapter 2. John Meacham and Julia Reed. Greetings. I'm Ebony Lumumba. No one cares about that because I'm sitting across from two literary giants and (laughs) all-out hilarious people. John Meacham, welcome. Thank you, ma'am. And Julia Reed. Thank you very much. She did not bring sangria with vodka. I've <laughs> since forgiven her it's for that. It's actually on the way. Uh, it, it Uber, might be on Uber the way. Uber picked it up. Uber drinks. It's on its way over. That's a dangerous <laughs> motto. Well, we're just having a conversation about books, about you, which you guys know a lot about books and you know a lot about you. So it's going to be like no other interview you've <laughs> ever done before because we don't really care about the stuff that people usually ask you. What's your writing process? your inspiration yeah. you don't Blah. care about that mm. start typing <laughs> yeah fear is my inspiration fear i've been julia's editor uh, more or less for 20 years right. official, uh, paid and unpaid mostly mm-hmm. the latter hey and to say that julia has an ambivalent relationship with deadlines mm. is to like saying was ford's theater a good outing for the lincolns <laughs> woman after my own heart Deadline. Fear is a good motivator. Just all out terror. Yeah, terror and, and, you know, and and the knowledge that you won't get paid if you don't do this. T.S. Eliot once said, a late essay, that there was a certain kind of genius that only performed on deadline. It was rather self-serving because he was late with the piece. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really true. When I am sort of writing and I know I have all the time in the world, it's not as sharp or focused or when I just sort of like get sit down and spew it's actually much better well listen i wish i could say the same for my students (laughs) but they kind of have the same model we'll just wait until but there is something about procrastination and john knows that i'm the number one procrastinator but i think you would agree that while you're freaking out about the fact that you have to write this and just making yourself generally miserable and coming up with all kind of other stuff to do besides that. I mean, like, there's, you know, everybody's like, my closet's clean because <laughs> I had a deadline, whatever. But something weird is going on in your subconscious, it does. And I, and so when you finally have to, like, you know, there's no time left and you start writing, it's it's been bubbling around in there somewhere. The or at least I just tell myself that. <laughs> pressure, creating diamonds, something like that, right? I've been reading, for various reasons, a lot of E.B. White this, this week. And yeah. White had a great line about he didn't know what he was going to say until he said it. Hmm. So he's Even a, as a novelist? We didn't uh, as a but as an essay. Yeah, he would. Just, he said the only way to have contiguous thoughts is to write them down, and I find that to be true. I, I often too. don't know what a conclusion will be until, until you're in, in something. David McCullough has a great line about when you know when books are going well when you fall in the spell of them, hmm. and you're sort of living with the people even when you're living with other people. Sure. And I, I do I do think there's something to that. There's also, in, in Julia and I have both done a good bit of this, people always want uh, 
pre-obits, you know, <laughs> mainly because right. Julie, and I, mainly like Julie be. and I only know old people. That's true. And I actually resist that because I think there is something in that, that swoosh of the moment, uh, as long as you can do it quickly. Sure. Uh, uh, my friend, Devin, our friend Devin Thomas, used to say when, when he first went to write for Time Magazine that his goal was to be faster than the best person and better than the fastest. Hmm. Which is not a bad. And that's not a bad goal. But I mean, and I, the book I've got out now, which is a collection of essays from Garden and Gun, my Garden and Gun column, and that's mm-hmm. another editor can tell you that yes. he sits by the like computer waiting and waiting for that email to come. <laughs> but I, you know, we the call pro- him the Maytag. The pro- shut up. The problem <laughs> has nothing to do. <laughs> the problem with the column is that the illustrator is not as fast as the writer, right? So I have got to come up with. I mean, so the column ideas are often. Uh, you know, I, I'll sort of okay. This is what I'll write the column about. And I have to write a sort of precy for the edit for the illustrator, mm-hmm. and then he illustrates his column, and I will find what John was saying. I don't know what I'm going to write until I write it. And so about midway through, I'm like, oh my god, this bears no relation to this half page illustration. So I'll have to like go back and throw in some curly Q sentence, you know, to, to tie it to the thing. But it's true, especially with an essay. I think um, we used to call that at Newsweek the hip fake. The hip fake. Hip fake. Hip fake to what the illustration's about. Yeah. <laughs> so as to not just completely abuse Ignore, the yeah. poor illustration. Yeah, exactly. and, 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 and leave people wondering why you're doing something completely different in this illustration than what you're saying in the column. That's very noble of you. I mean, to even we consider. are noble people. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm I, glad you I, picked up I on that. I sense that first thing. No. Let's talk about, we, we could talk all day about what you've written. And I'm cu- curious about this process as you write these historical pieces. I mean, how can you be that spontaneous within the historical context yeah well i think part of it is if i under if i undertake a big big biography i I try to meet three tests one is is the person not as central in the current conversation as i think they should be Mm -hmm. secondly do they have something to say to us now without without beating that Sure. without contorting them into into a 21st century person and is there some archival light that can be that can be shown so once you immerse yourself it's about a five-year process to write a big one and david halberstam used to say that a, a great nonfiction book or a big nonfiction book rather was like an undergraduate degree hmm. you sort of you mm-hmm. spend a year you spend a year and a half two years getting up to speed you spend your third year really putting it down and then your last year making it as, as smart as possible. And if you think of it in those stages, it's, it's, it's possible. The other side of that, though, and I, I know Julia feels this way, is if you think sitting there, well, I am now writing history and, you know, I will be wearing my smoking jacket. <laughs> it sounds very important. It sounds very important. Yeah, sure. But also it doesn't get any words on the page. No. And so you just have to start you can't that's the I mean that's the people always ask me like that question how do you start where do you start like what's your process like all that stuff that you said you weren't going to go into for good reason because it literally is just starting and if you think about what you're doing I mean John has to think about more lofty things than me but uh than I do but but uh if you think about anything you're doing it's going to stymie you I mean you just start typing over obsessing right you literally start typing and that's where fear comes in with me because it's like you you don't have a choice and, and for me, it's hubris because ah. I mean, my guy. All right, so 
I mean, it's not as though Thomas Jefferson is an undercovered figure. Uh, <laughs> or Andrew Jackson. Thomas or Andrew Jackson. <laughs> or, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. I don't know who any of these people are. Uh, but, but so, yeah, and I like to, the joke I make because people stand up, you know, at, at book talks and say, how did you think you could have something new to say? There have been lots of books about Thomas Jefferson. I'd say, well, like Casablanca, I was misinformed. I didn't know there were any. Uh, but I think there's a reason... Uh, <laughs> My rather grand and overly facile response is there's a reason Shakespeare wrote about kings. Hmm. You never have to explain why you're doing it. You may have you may not succeed in engaging people. Sure. But if you're writing about a president of the United States at a particularly uh, contentious and influential period, the importance of it is self-evident. So the predicate is established, and then the, the burden becomes, can you be both entertaining and illuminating? You don't have to defend your choice no. of subject. Yeah. yeah. So we know about what you write. We do. I mean, if we are living and breathing in the free world. But I'm interested Hardly, in... Mm. Well, John, I, like, I like that, though. John, I there like you go. Way, but... I like that. I mean, hubris is that. There you go. What are you reading? Oh, gosh. What's well, on your bedside table? Well, Julie and I have equally bad taste. <laughs> uh, that's what I was hoping for. Yeah. That's really going yeah, to I send should, the I ratings put it that through way. the that, that, That's totally wrong. I love, love, love... Uh, I have three annual books I read. Uh, Jack Reacher. Lee Child's Jack Reacher. <laughs> Daniel Silva's. Uh, You're kidding. I hadn't, even, I hadn't even gone there. Oh, they're great. <laughs> All right, they're you fantastic. keep telling me. <laughs> uh, I mean, and, not that I'm above it. Trust no, me, no, no, I just no, hadn't no, gotten uh, around. And Michael Conley, who does the procedural in L.A. I just finished. <laughs> I mean, his, those, his yeah, one. Bosch is like my boyfriend. Bosch is bad. Um, but, and I just, re- I just wrote, a, my last column for Garden and Gun was, uh, <laughs> again, was pulling it out of the hat. It was this women's issue, and I thought, okay, there are enough women in this damn magazine this time, so I think I'll write about men. Right. And as we know, men are not really going through one of their best moments at this <laughs> in our culture. I saw Just that. Just acting That's bad never every before. which way. Not Mr. Meacham, of course, but pretty much everybody else <laughs> Present on the company planet excluded. seems to be. Yeah. So... I started rereading just mainly because it was a good, like, lazy exercise. All of these John D. McDonald mysteries, and the hero yes. of those mysteries is a man named Travis McGee, who is every woman's dream, right? So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to use Travis as an example of how people should behave. And now I have gone back since. I mean, I started writing that. I mean, I wrote that column in like June. I have now read like 32 John D. McDonald. I mean, I've read them all before, yeah. but I've reread them. That's the benefit of reading the kind of books that John and I are talking about. And the benefit of middle age is I can now reread P.D. James mm-hmm. or uh, yeah, you go back Trollope, to those mysteries. and I can't We both remember. love Trollope and P.D. James. Um, and I can't remember So it's what literally like a new experience. You're it engaging is. it for the first I time. Reread, so Miranda in the Tempest. I reread Walker Percy, at least one Walker Percy Walker novel per- every year. Moviegoer? Moviegoer. It's not, I mean, actually, uh, I was really lucky because... You know, I lived in uh, when I I read the movie Gore before I moved to New Orleans, and um, and then when Dean Baquette, who's now the editor in chief of the New York Times, was still I think the national the Washington bureau chief, and uh, he they had this thing I don't know if they still do it, but they had a like a on the website at the New York Times Book Review, they had two or three people talking about books, you know, via email or whatever. And so it was Dean, it was uh, because he's from New Orleans, mm-hmm. and then and it was me. And uh, we got uh, uh, help me out, Farrar Strauss, Jonathan Galassi, who was the head Galassi. of Farrar Strauss, who's, who who um, was 
Walker's publisher. So we had this great sort of, we had to talk, a conversation that went on for weeks about it. And it made me reread the book and have to really think about it since I was trying to be dazzling or at least not embarrass myself on the <laughs> website. It's always um, the goal. So I have new Been appreciation lying. for the for the movie goer, but I love probably the most The Last Gentleman in Love and the Ruins. Oh. And, I, and Lancelot is deeply, darkly hysterical, even though everyone's like, oh, this is a dark book. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm laughing out loud, crying. Haunting, even. But yeah, so I read I read Walker a lot. I reread, uh, I've been on a, um, a Chekhov jag because, wow. well, there's Walker and Shelby Foote, his best friend, had you know, a collection of letters between mm-hmm. the two of them. And they fought over everybody. Like, Walker loved Dostoevsky. Shelby's like, get out of here. Uh, Shelby was obsessed with Proust. Walker's like, I can't, not even going to try. <laughs> um, but the only thing they agreed on was Chekhov. And they would write these letters, that whole letters just going, basically answering the same question. How does he do it? How does he do it? Yeah. And so it's, if you want a, like a great lesson in writing, just pick up a volume of Chekhov and go to town. Don't you think? That yeah, is, that's a catchphrase for you. Pick the, up a, a copy of Chekhov and go to town. Yeah. Let's put it on a t-shirt. The, uh, and I thought you meant the Star Trek guy. <laughs> uh, so the, the people I, I reread probably on a cycle of five years, I will try to reread Jane Austen's major stuff mm-hmm. and Middlemarch. Hmm. And it's, I guess it sounds pretentious. I don't mean it that way. It's just I find them to be the most intelligent 19th century novels and I would if if, if the the desert island question mm-hmm. I would take all 47 novels of Trollope uh, whom I think is a more astute psychological novelist than Dickens by far mm-hmm. yeah I, do. I agree and he's also Trollope is great for it's a bi- gang of folks that would fight you about that I know yeah, bring it on granted on. they don't have very I mean there's no muscle behind them. I would take yeah, Chekhov and Tolstoy I think ah but the thing about Trollope is for a biographer he is wildly sympathetic to even his darkest characters. So is Tolstoy. Yeah, Tolstoy's blah, blah, blah. Oh, shut up. <laughs> and the fight starts here in the library. The first page of, of War and Peace is so brilliant. Well, then there are stop like about there. 32 then characters, and you know every one of them by the end of by the first page. It's you know what? That's remarkable. Okay, it well, here's, here's, here's my view of these Russian novels. Is It goes back to Peanuts. <laughs> what you guys can't see Linus, is the more interesting thing. Linus is reading all these books that Julia is pretentiously saying. She oh, reads. please, pretentious. This is pre obituary, by the way, guys. Okay. And, uh, exactly. And um, uh, Lucy says, How do you pronounce all those names? And Linus says, Oh, I don't. I just bleep over them. So. I just have to bleep over the Russian. Uh huh. Okay, you're lost, and, my friend. You're no, lost. No, I'll, is, I'll deal with this. I'll, yeah. But I will agree with you on Lee Child. Mm. <laughs> there's some underlying meaning there. Just bleep over the Russian name. Yeah, yeah. If only the White House would like, do it. Right. Of this. Thank you very much. <laughs> just oh, redact God. everything. That's right. Where's Michael Flynn? So listen, some of the things that you all have mentioned that you engage regularly, annually, in terms of texts. It's not the easiest to go about with a sober mind. What are you drinking while you're reading these things? <laughs> he drinks Diet Coke. I mean, and how are you? I don't drink and read. I mean, I do a lot of drinking, as anybody who's read my books will know. But uh, <laughs> you don't, you can't really drink and write. As you, mm-hmm. if you read some late Hemingway, that's pretty evident. Uh, and Faulkner. you can't really drink and read. I agree. I I smoke and read. I smoke cigars. I don't drink anymore. Uh, but you know, there's a great. Was it Scott McDonald? No, that's not quite the right name. Scott Donaldson mm-hmm. wrote a great, who's a Cheever biographer, uh, wrote a great essay about, I think it was in the Swanee Review, uh, 
about the cost of alcohol to the great American writers. Mm. And there have been a ton of books. Artists about in that. general, right? Yeah. yeah, but there's a whole subset. I mean, on my bookshelf, I don't know how this happened, but I was re- I was organizing some bookshelves the other day, and I must have like six or seven books about drinking and writers. I mean, and, and it's uh, it's a genre. What else is there to say? There's, there's that question. Well, it just explored these sort of, I mean, these sad. Is it fuel? It, 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 at a certain level, I suspect the I, I, the argument would be that at one point, at at the front end, it's the fuel. And at the back end, it's the obstacle. Hmm. And the, when he, I mean, I was a yeah. newspaper reporter for a long time and a, new, and a news magazine reporter. And those days, I mean, I was still a child in uh, Newsweek's Washington Bureau when I first started. And those were the days, there was a bar right across the street from Newsweek's Washington Bureau called the Class Reunion. It had black walls, black carpet, black tablecloths, and black ceiling. And, the manifestation of our soul. And <laughs> everybody was smoking and drinking like crazy in there. And, you know, but it was on a, a reporter can do that because you got to just keep it together enough to like. And there was literally a phone. I mean, this is before emails, much less like cell phones. And there was literally a phone in the corner. And these guys would come sometimes phone in stories and then pour themselves into a booth mm-hmm. where, I mean, like these guys were like drinking chartreuse after lunch and stuff. Thanks. I remember one of the Washington Post guys, Tommy O'Toole, was like a chartreuse addict. But I mean, it was like, but then you sort of sleep it off and you can wake up again. I mean, that's that's a brutal way to live. But I mean, newspaper reporters could get away with it more than you can't sustain. I don't think long term novel writing. Our, our friend Christopher Buckley has a great line somewhere about Bill Buckley's son. Um that the two martini lunch won the Cold War because those guys, <laughs> those guys, brilliant. well, those guys would be at lunch and they would have the two martinis. They say, "Yeah, let's let's put those Pershing missiles in the Europe. You know, let's build that plant in Here LA." The so they would never have done it sober. You know, if they were on a treadmill, you know, it's, it's astonishing purge. to think, though. I mean, like in my day, which I'm just like not all that much older than John, but I mean, in those when I started started out. Nobody went to lunch and had iced tea or a Mm-mm. Diet Coke. Well, there wasn't Diet Coke, but um, almost. Oh, yeah. Everybody drank. But, I mean, mm-hmm. it was... All day. But, I mean, no, they but they would come back to the office and somehow, like, bang out some stuff. But it was astonishing. I mean, I'd go to the class reunion and half a Carter staff would be in there. Jody Powell, his, his uh, Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter's mm-hmm. spokesman. Uh, my good friend and fellow Greenvillian Hiding Carter, who was the spokesman for the State Department, was in there. I mean, like, you'd have, like, columnists and reporters. Everybody was in there just drinking all the time. So there's a lesson to be learned. Well, I mean, but but, but also, John's point is that the statesmen were also at the Sans well, Souci having their martinis. Well, and, and Churchill never... Not drank. Yeah, <laughs> Ch- Churchill woke up and at breakfast would have, he would light a cigar and would have a Johnny Walker red, uh, very weak, but it would have soda. Uh, and he would drink. There was never a moment of the day when there was not some alcohol in his system. But wouldn't you say that that is an extremely rare example of functioning? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah I mean, ab- absolutely. You know more about Churchill mm-hmm. than I do, obviously. But, I mean. FDR, did, FDR waited till the evening, but he would have two drinks. Uh, it's amazing we all aren't speaking German because his idea of a martini <laughs> was three-fourths vermouth, one-fourth gin. And Churchill yes. hated those drinks so much that he would pour them in a plant in the residence. As he was, well, and as the plant died. Would. The plant died over Christmas 1941. <laughs> a science experiment gone wrong. <laughs> for certain. Yeah. So, 
I'm interested in what you pull out of your own writing and research specifically you, John. Have you found yourself sort of shifting in habits and characteristics based on folks or themes that you've written about? You mean personally? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to think so. I like to think that by exposure to people who have been transformative that somehow or another more of a disposition of heart and mind. So you're not having a Johnny Walker in the morning. This is no, not. I'm not. I'm not doing that. No, no. In, in terms of habits, His no. other mm-hmm. admirable qualities. But what I, do, what I do, what I find the, the longer I do this is, and it's been th- exactly 30 years since my first byline in a newspaper uh, this summer, is more and more sympathy and a much more nuanced view of how people in power make decisions. By and large, I think they're trying to do the right thing. They are, if they get to the right thing 51% of the time, we get a Lincoln. Mm. You know, we just, but it's not much higher than that. And so maybe it's middle age, maybe it's, I don't know quite sure what it is, but I think the more time you spend in the company of people who had responsibility for other people's lives, Mm -hmm. you realize that what's truly remarkable is not that they got so much wrong, but that they got so much right. Sure. It outweighs, perhaps, questionable decisions. You have to judge them on the totality. Franklin Roosevelt saved capitalism and defeated tyranny around the world, projected America into global power against the forces of isolationism. And yet he issued Executive Order 9066 mm-hmm. and turning the Japanese Americans, not yeah. foreign nationals, yeah. American citizens. Exactly. So what do you make of that? Uh, you know, Earl Warren, who issued the Brown versus Board of Education decision, a unanimous decision, was an architect of Japanese American internment when he was the Attorney General of California. If you read Lincoln's first inaugural, he said slavery's fine where yeah, it is. He did. Right. So. I, I think if we overly romanticize the past, we do a disservice in two ways. So one is we do a disservice to the sacrifice of those who were dealing with uh, yeah. obstacles and overcame them. And Mississippi is a particularly uh, pungent example mm-hmm. of that, uh, as is the American South in general. Yeah. And the other is we foreclose the possibility of learning about how democratic lowercase d progress mm-hmm. happens. So it sounds like you're a lot more forgiving of yourself and other people because of what you Well, certainly of other people. (laughs) (laughs) Still working on stuff. Julia? Well, I mean, my experience is so different than John. I mean, the way what we write about and stuff. When I started out as a journalist, and especially during the 20 years I spent at Vogue, I did a lot of profiles. And it was like just being given, you know, sort of another college education. It's like whatever I wanted to learn about. I could go do and whoever I wanted to go meet and all of those people totally I mean like all those experiences have fed now into this giant whatever washing machine uh, yeah. that I have but I mean mm, you know washing like, machine I, I, like I remember assigning somebody else when I was an editor and a writer at Vogue to go spend a weekend with Jim Harrison in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan the novelist that I was like madly in love with and read everything and, and this friend of mine said what are you doing? So I like called the the woman that I had assigned and made up some lie and went myself and Jim and I became fast friends. But uh, you know that was like an, an occasion where that changed my life and enriched it greatly just by this friendship with this amazing writer and poet. And, and but then you know uh, I remember 
just people that I was just dreading going to interview, like Barbara Streisand, nightmare and a half. I mean, like the woman, I mean, I literally got in the car. That was in the days where like your magazines were so rich, as John remembers too, that you had a black car sitting around waiting for you every time. And so I got in that car and I literally got in this car and started, scr- I mean, I had to scream for like five minutes because it had been so stressful. But then I became, I, I, I developed this weird sympathy for her, even though she'd like call me in the middle of the night one morning at one o'clock in the morning. She goes, Julia. It's Barbara. I'm like, I'm thinking of all the Barbers I knew. Not Barbara? But Barbara Streisand did not come into the brain pan yet. and So she's crazy. But I remember trying to be sort of super gentle with her when I was writing her. Because you do learn whether you're writing a biography or even more so in some ways with an alive person in the here and now. Mm-hmm. You know, who am I, buddy? And, yeah. and, and it does make you... Wow. It judge does. Not. It, judge it, not. Yeah, and it, and and, and you still and you know then you learn. I mean, I you know I had some great experiences. I went on a, the Trans Siberian Railroad with a bunch of lesbians from Germany and fishermen's wives from Who hasn't France to go to the Spring UN break. Women's Conference. <laughs> I mean, I went to Afghanistan. I mean, like all these places. I went to Romania right after the fall because the beauty editor of Vogue actually thought that the spa in Bucharest was still going to be open, even though the Ceausescu's had just been burned alive. So uh, the spa. Uh, I got great stuff fodder from all those experiences and learned a lot from the people that I interviewed. So I draw on that now. It's, you know, it's not as hard as it could be when I have to produce a column on demand, say, because all that stuff is rolling around somewhere in the brain pan. And you've still got stuff to write about that. I mean, I, I, you stopped me right at this spa that wasn't going to actually be there. I wrote about that for Vogue. It's a pretty funny story. I might have to resurrect that sooner or later. I mean, like, going to the spa, the beauty spa in Bucharest, when I landed, there was not a roof on the airport and wild dogs were roaming around. So I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure that the beauty spa is not... <laughs> yeah, the mud treatment is going spa. to be particularly interesting. I kept telling our, our crazy-as-hell editor, Shirley Lord, who was married to Abe Rosenthal, who was then the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, so she should have known better. I'm like, Shirley... Um, John is making a crazy He's doing the crazy finger rotation. Uh, I'm like, Shirley, I'm pretty sure, you know, I don't know if you've been reading the paper, like your husband's paper on the front page. I mean, like, (laughs) Romania has, the government has fallen, okay? And it's like, no, the ambassador's going to meet you. You have to go. Get a mani-pedi. Yeah, okay. You should have seen this. But it turns out that the spa, the treatment there, I did find a doctor who once worked at the spa, and the treatment there was they gave you amphetamines and cortisone and, um, uh, lidocaine so you're just numb and speeding so of course you're like perky yeah hmm. i was kind of sad that the spa wasn't going i'm like hell i get a lot done i mean i, I did re- not have that experience let's in writing bottle about this the up. bush family <laughs> you're kidding i know it's surprising i know who'd, who'd have thunk it but that was the great thing about the profession when john and i first got into it though That's is because true. they you know, magazines and newspapers had extraordinary budgets. I mean, mm-hmm. when I fir- when I before I wrote my first profile of Bill Clinton, I followed him for nine months, day in and day out, and that is the way you find out. Like now, we have a president who just regurgitates whatever is like the first. I mean, I don't even know if he you doesn't know what he's going to say, pan, until but it whatever. Comes out. I mean, like it just you know it just yeah. spews out. But until that moment. You used to have to sort of spend a whole lot of time with these people to sort of get some kind of window into their real soul. Mm-hmm. And it takes, you know, a moment on a campaign train at one o'clock in the morning. When I, I watched one time, I watched John Edwards get in a fight with a man in a waffle suit. Wait, and, a, a waffle, waffle costume? A waffle man. Yeah, he was wearing a big styrofoam 
waffle because he was making the point that John Kerry was waffling on the issues, and Kerry was the Democratic well, I, nominee. Obviously, that's and, why he would wear a waffle. And, you know, nobody was taking the Waffle Man seriously. First of all, there were like a bunch of homeless people that the advanced people had managed to round up for this yeah. whistle stop at 1 a.m. in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. So only the only person who cared about the Waffle but it was so offensive to him that he was being interrupted because his ego was so giant. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, I mean, he literally leaned over the train, the Harry Truman train, and almost went head first into the truck trying to grab the Waffle Man. The Waffle. Which, yeah. Yep. This, these are the kinds of things you need images of. I mean, your words are beautiful, <laughs> but Julia. But you sort of wait for those I moments see it for but people you know, to reveal Julia, themselves. as ever, is working within the Plutarchian tradition. <laughs> oh, please. Just, I, just, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> Julia thinks Plutarch is a shoe designer. Okay. But <laughs> wait, he isn't? Up just a second. <laughs> but Plutarch said that, the great ancient biographer, that there are often moments where the smallest gesture or the most casual remark will tell you more about the history of a given era than the largest battle mm-hmm. or the most important piece of statecraft. And that's absolutely true because all of this is a human drama. Yeah. And, you, I mean, like with, in his work, for sure, when I was doing all those profiles, you just wait and wait and wait. And you have to wait it out. I mean, you just sort of, especially if you're doing I mean, like he's excavating a lot of the times right. if he's doing dead folks. But you when you're doing it with the live person you just i mean you go through the most incredibly stultifyingly boring periods in the world to wait for this one little illumination yeah my goodness and and you know it when it happens and it's the happiest moment of your life yep. and your lead is done and yep. there you go yep. and yep. off yep. you are running and 5000 yep. words later you're, you're over you're, and out you're yep. back in the town car and yep. back then you're not injecting it into onto twitter immediately <laughs> true let's listen you're in mississippi now my home state yes mine as well we're homegirls and he's married to a homegirl i sleep with one oh well then by proxy you're homegirl too (laughs) (laughs) tell me in just a few words what mississippi means to you and perhaps your work if it informs it in any way julia oh i knew you were gonna point to me first um well mississippi is home you know for better or worse to me and and somehow no matter what I always, I mean, I, my, the title of my new book is called South Toward Home. I mean, it's, and I'm, I'm actually building a house in Greenville, Mississippi, a tiny right. one, but nonetheless. Uh, you know, somebody said, you're like an old Jew going back to Israel. So I'm like, here I go it's crawling back metaphor. home. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's true. You go back to the motherland. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's so, for all its complications, sordid, horrible history, a lot of which I was still alive to see. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't want to be from anywhere else because you talk about human drama. We are watching it, you know, yeah. and we still are. But I mean, I had a front row seat to a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff, and uh, I wouldn't trade that. I mean, I wouldn't want to be from someplace dull. Frankly, I mean, I'm really glad I'm from where I'm from, and uh, it means likewise. Uh, you know, it's it's. I used to write when I would. When I lived in Washington and New York, and you could actually fly, I would go home, and there was actually, in those days, a nice Delta Airlines jet from Memphis to Greenville. Mm -hmm. But even so, I would rent the biggest car I could get at Avis or Hertz and roll down the windows and, like, bomb down. That's when you go over this last hill when you leave Memphis, and you go into the flatness of that Delta, and it was like, talk about Proust. There's no mm. more powerful scent than like the smell of like defoliant and chemicals <laughs> and dirt, and I'm yeah. like, whoa, I am home. I mean, there's just Crop something. Above your yeah, head. I mean, the Delta landscape is 
is almost lunar. I mean, it's like another world, and it it feels like that. And I that reentry always makes me feel great, actually, like I'm home. Beautiful, John. Anything I, to add? I take it as a more general than a particular. Uh, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Grew up on a Civil War battlefield, Missionary Ridge, which is where Arthur MacArthur won his Medal of Honor. It's how. Sherman got to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Sewanee, the University of the South, um, and one of the critical books in my formation, insofar as I've been formed, was All the King's Men. Mm. Um, so, so somewhere between Louisiana and Tennessee, and I covered politics in Georgia, and um, and of course. Uh, having married into uh, Tribbett, Mississippi. <laughs> the uh, royalty. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, we'll leave that aside. Uh, it's, um, it's part of a landscape where in American history, and I say this is a clinical observation, the Southern manifestation of national factors is acute and mm-hmm. often extreme to exaggerate it. So when the North sneezes, the the South catches a cold. Mm. And so I think in Mississippi is very much at the heart of that. Belly of the beast. Listen, y'all, thank you. Thank you so much. This was actually fun. This is a joy. (laughs) Best thing I've done all day. Thank you. Besides that Johnny Walker this morning. That's good. (laughs) That's good. And then he started drinking Paul Roger at lunch. Ah. Which is like I, that is that I'm is a, a tradition I'd like point. to start back up. I don't <laughs> we'll have do a budget. We'll do it together. Sisters of the South. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, y'all, so much. This is right on Mississippi. Right on, Julian John. Right on. Thank right you, on. Madam First Lady. Right. <laughs> thank you. We want to thank John Meacham and Julia Reed for joining us today. Be sure to visit your local bookstore to purchase their works and keep up with them online by checking out the links in the description. Right on Mississippi is brought to you by the Mississippi Book Festival and Bradley Arendt and produced by Pottery Studios. Our guests for this episode were John Meacham and Julia Reed. Our editor was Joshua Heath, producer Holly Lang, executive producer Bo York, and I've been your host, Ebony Lamumba. We look forward to turning the page with you on the next chapter of Right on Mississippi.